Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to New Books Network in History, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Lane Davis, and today I'm talking with Theodore D. Siegel. He is an attorney, now retired, who has recently turned to this history of his alma mater that we're talking about today, Duke University. The book is Point of Reckoning, The Fight for Racial Justice at Duke University. Mr. Siegel, thanks for taking the time to be with us, and welcome to New Books in History. My, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So if you will, start by telling us a bit about yourself. Your career does not look like one that most people <laughs> who end up writing history books take. Tell us a bit about this journey. Well, it's, it's, been, a, it's been an interesting evolution. So uh, back in 1978-79, I was actually in history graduate school at Duke briefly and began a master's thesis on black student activism at Duke in the 60s. Um, I ended up dropping out of graduate school. Um, I ended up becoming a lawyer, having a family, raising kids. And then just as I was retiring from my law practice in 2016, I just got the idea, uh, wouldn't it be fun to try to um, finish that unfinished master's thesis. Initially, the thought was, I'll write the last chapter, I'll write the conclusion, I'll just check a box that I had never checked. But when I went back to this dusty box of records and drafts and stuff that I had last looked at, literally as a 21-year-old, for various reasons, my understanding and insight and thoughts about the topic really had evolved and and had exploded. And so all of a sudden, bringing the perspective of an adult who had dropped my own kids off at college, who had worked in law firms for a number of years, I just brought a very different and deeper insight to it than I had when I first looked at it. And that got the ball rolling. And then I was lucky enough to connect with uh, people at Duke, including my former advisor from 1979 who agreed to work with me again and Hmm. the Duke archivist and my editor at Duke Press. And so the the whole thing was an evolutionary process, but it was was sort of an overnight sensation 40 years in coming. (laughs) Right. Now, I'm sure that our listeners are familiar with Duke University, of course, one of the elite institutions of higher education in the world, but the school has a unique institutional history. It's really risen in the ranks fairly quickly in the the world of of college education. So maybe just tell us briefly about that background that leads up to where your narrative really begins in the early 1960s. Sure. So Duke uh, traces its roots to Trinity College and then before that, uh, other predecessor institutions. But Trinity College in, in Durham, North Carolina, was a undergraduate school that was, uh, you know, well-regarded enough. But in uh, 1923, 1924, James B. Duke, who had made fortunes in multiple industries, the most recent one 
being in textiles and then in water power to uh, run the textile mills, decided he wanted to combine his uh, work with his philanthropy and decided to endow uh, the Duke Endowment. Uh, the Duke Endowment initially funded a number of different uh, activities, healthcare and the like. But the biggest, uh, biggest sum went to Trinity College if it would agree to uh, change its name to Duke University and basically agree to accept uh, Duke's millions and then take the leap from being a, a just a kind of very provincial um, college to a provincial university, but with much bigger ambitions. And so Duke is unique among uh, premier institutions in that it sort of popped up, not overnight, but very quickly. I mean, if you see Duke, the architecture is all uniform. Uh, It was sort of all built in one, at least the initial part, in one vision and one one style. But over the, the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s, uh, Duke uh, was a, a good uh, but not uh, superior regional school. But from the day it was founded, it, it had these just bold aspirations, still does, mm. to uh, be uh, more than a regional school and be a kind of a national powerhouse. And um, it, it, was, it was in the early 60s when Duke's segregationist admissions policies and Duke's aspirations to become a national institution came into conflict. And that's when sort of my story starts. Yeah. So, you know, uh, you have a quote from one of the first African-American students uh, who was admitted and enrolled in Duke, Nathaniel White. Um, he, he said, uh, he talked about the difference between the Duke campus and the city of Durham, which he grew up in. And, and here's the quote that, that you attribute to him. He said, there was no relationship. It was complete discovery. I can't express how much the town that I lived in as Durham and the town that I moved to as Duke were such separate enterprises. Uh, talk about the context of Durham and Duke uh, during that period. What, what would have White and his peers experienced uh, from moving from a place like Durham uh, and not leaving the city, but just moving to the campus of Duke University? Well, you know, Duke, uh, as, as we've already talked about, was a historically white institution. It was mm. among the historically white colleges and universities in the South. And, and when you talk about a historically white institution, what you mean is this was a school that was um, uh, endowed by white people, was uh, the labor was uh, largely black labor, but it was designed by white people for white people, uh, architectural and curricular and every choice that went into the creation of Duke University just by definition was by white people for white students, administrators, and faculty because Mm -hmm. Duke, again, until 1963, was segregated and the only black people on campus were service workers who made barely a subsistence living. So you've got this Duke University, which is, again, this white institution in the segregated South where the students and the administrators and the faculty in that era would have interacted with black people, 
but only in a service capacity, right? Mm-hmm. And then you've got these black communities throughout the South, um, Rocky Mount, Durham, uh, others, where you have these um, very strong um, segregated communities where everyone was very close knit, the church, the uh, family and the school were hand in hand. There were these black schools that kids went to. There was no desegregated education. And these kids would go to these black schools and they would have tremendously talented teachers because back in that era, if you were able to get a degree in higher education uh, as a black person, there was really no option to teach anywhere but kind of back in your local community. So, So in the era of Jim Crow, you've got these two parallel but adjacent worlds. And uh, the world of Black Durham, uh, it was very supportive. It was very familiar. It was very resonant to these kids who grew up in it. It was just entirely different. And uh, obviously, there were issues in terms of, uh, you know, financial support and uh, financial resources. I mean, Black Durham then and now was under-resourced financially. But but what's important to keep in mind is that these kids who grew up in these Black communities were just extraordinarily well looked after and, in fact, groomed to be ready when desegregation occurred and they could um, move into white uh, higher education. So it, it, it just it's parallel universes right next to each other because of segregation. Right, right. So the Hope Valley Country Club in Durham plays a significant role in the rising tensions at Duke. Tell us about that. So Duke was endowed in 1924. And in 1925, um, because of the uh, growth of Duke and the medical system and all of the faculty and others who would be migrating to Durham to kind of populate this new university, because of the expansion of the University of North Carolina and because of other industry that was being developed in Durham, um, a, a, a community was designed called uh, Hope Valley. And a country club was designed as the centerpiece for that community called Hope Valley Country Club. And that country club uh, was a very you know, prestigious, sought-after place. Um, Its uh, bylaws uh, stated explicitly that it was for people of the Caucasian race only, and the only um, Black people at Hope Valley would have been the, again, the service workers who, by virtue of Jim Crow practice, if they wanted to go into the clubhouse, they had to kind of go in through the back door. So this place came into existence right around the time that Duke did and over and it was only four miles away from Duke. So over the years, Hope Valley uh, became in effect a social annex for Duke, even in the late 20s. Uh, Glee Club would perform there and fraternities and sororities would have their events there and alumni functions were there and the golf team practiced there because because Duke was all white. Um, obviously the segregation policy provided no impediment and, and, and Hope Valley was, was the kind of place I'm sure that 
students and faculty and administrators were quite accustomed to going to because that was the way it was in the South at the time. And and this was a, a country club that specifically uh, caused some issues because the president, Douglas Knight, was uh, was a member there. Uh, what was what was that tension all about? Well, I mean, what's so uh, fascinating uh, about the story and, and so, um, you know, heartbreaking is that is that, you know, so so. Duke in 1963 is is basically forced to desegregate because the federal government and the Ford Foundation were saying we're just not going to give any more research grants or funding to uh, segregated schools. So it's it desegregates, but um, it 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 just decides without ever talking to any black people that what these kids coming in want to do is simply you know, fit into the white student body. They're essentially lucky to be here. And so Duke engaged in no self-reflection, self-reflection or study or investigation mm. as to what changes might be necessary to an institution now that it had Black students as part of the Duke community. And, and one of the many things they failed to consider or chose not to consider was this practice of holding um, campus events at a segregated country club. Because uh, now that there were Duke students present, um, at some point it was going to happen that an organization that the student belonged to would hold an event at uh, Hope Valley Country Club, and that would create a problem. And that event happened in 1965 when C.B. Claiborne, who was the first black basketball player at Duke, uh, excelled his freshman year, was awarded a letter, and then was forbidden to attend the awards banquet for the athletic team at Hope Valley Country Club because there was no exceptions given to the segregation policy. And so with that and with subsequent events, this, this contradiction that had never been focused on uh, exploded into view and became a source of of conflict, initial conflict between the growing black student movement and the university. And then, and then, Lane, as you alluded to, compounding the problem uh, or the issue was the fact that um, not only Douglas Knight, the president, but 50 or 60 other administrators and faculty at Duke had personal memberships. But Duke, uh, Douglas Knight's membership was seen as particularly problematic because um, as president of the school, he was kind of representing Duke. And, and why is this person who, who, as Duke president, is making all these claims that Duke is uh, progressive and wants to do the right things on racial issues? Why is he in his you know, private life a member of this, this country club? So this, this became a real flashpoint in the, uh, the mid-60s. Hmm. Uh, certainly, that, that's a catalyzing event. Um, also, you, you note Stokely Carmichael visits Duke in 1967. That also really seemed to be a, a catalyst for black students to organize just to get to know each other and begin to take initial steps towards right. protest. What was that process like for these students? And, and what, were other, what, what were some of the other significant events uh, of this kind that you found as these uh, black students begin a kind of awakening on the Duke campus. Exactly. So these, the, so these students came in and, and, um, 
initially they were very few in number. The first year there were five black undergraduates. The next year there were six, you know, 10. And then the numbers soon began to increase, not as a percentage of Duke overall, but certainly as a percentage of the starting point. But Duke made a decision uh, to um, scatter the handful of black students they had all around the campus. Mm. So, and Duke uh, is separated between West Campus and East Campus. Uh, men lived on West, women lived on East. And, and so not only were the black students spread around, but men and women were actually spread around on, on different campuses. But they all came in and they all encountered this very hostile, uh, racially charged uh, environment where in the classroom, with deans, the athletic field, kind of everywhere they encountered, they were sort of bombarded with these, um, uh, you know, racial incidents and racial messages that were very jarring given that they had grown up in these communities where they were right at home in their black community and were the prize of their communities and were just always kind of looked to and, and groomed. And so individually and in isolation, these students were having these jarring experiences, but because they didn't know each other uh, and there weren't that many of them, nothing came of it other than the students feeling really very unhappy and very alienated. But then in the mid 60s in 1967, the Black Power movement had begun to emerge nationally with Stokely Carmichael as one of its leaders. And Stokely Carmichael just made the circuit. He spoke uh, in those years at hundreds of college campuses. And he would come in and he had a kind of an overall theoretical framework in which to explain what these students were experiencing. So the, the students go listen to Stokely Carmichael speak, and all of a sudden he's describing to them and, 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 and helping them understand the feelings of, of anger and alienation that they're all individually experiencing. So after Carmichael spoke, a bunch of the black students said, hey, you know, we really need to get together and talk. And so soon after Carmichael spoke, a group of black students, uh, they had actually all the black students on campus got together for the first time, not for any heavy duty political agenda, but just to share what their experiences were. Mm-hmm. And, and like kids came and they realized that some of the black students who uh, some thought were janitors were actually graduate students. And so they really went through this process of getting to know each other and, and, and finding that they were all having common experiences. And it was that uh, set of conversations um, against the backdrop of the national Black Power movement and the rising Black campus movement and other places that caused these students who, again, came in as rule follower goody-goodies to form the Duke Afro-American Society and begin to, um, you know, explore what steps they should take to try to force racial change at the university. I mean, white administrators at Duke and everywhere thought it was a student conspiracy or it was the communists or it was uh, 
just some rite of passage these kids wanted to do. But if you really look carefully at their story, it was this organic process that arose from the uh, experiences they were all having once they sat down and talked about them. Hmm. So the occupation of University House, which is the home of Dr. Douglas Knight at that time, Duke's president, that was a real turning point for racial protests on campus. Tell us about that event and then the silent vigil that, that followed. Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons studying these issues at Duke in this period is so compelling is that you have at Duke a predominantly white student protest in April 1968, in the aftermath of the assassination of Martin Luther King, followed 10 months later by an exclusively black student protest, which is the takeover of parts of the first floor of Duke's main administration building, the Allen Building. And so because you can kind of juxtapose these two events, you can see how differently white students, when they're protesting, were perceived in contrast to black students when they were protesting, when, when, uh, how, how they were perceived when they were protesting. And so and the aftermath of, of the assassination of Martin Luther King, these white, predominantly white students, almost entirely white students, decided that the university needs to kind of make a gesture, needs to take strides to show that it's committed to racial justice and uh, that it takes seriously uh, race issues in America. And about uh, 250 students uh, the night after King was killed march out to the Duke president's house. And it was raining and the Duke president came out to greet them, but a few slipped in. And then the Duke president trying to sort of reach out to these students that he saw were in such anguish said, well, why don't you all come in and let's kind of discuss this. And they all did. And the president's, I'm sure, horror, uh, they didn't just come in for a, a, a discussion. They came in for what became a 36-hour sit-in or occupation mm-hmm. of the president's house. And what you see uh, as you, administrators attempt to uh, manage that situation is that they were in constant contact with the students and did absolutely everything they could to avoid confrontation or the use of force. Even though alumni were calling in and writing in saying, you got to get those kids out, um, Douglas Knight decided to label them as guests. And he even gave women who still had to sign out of their dorms permission to sign out to the occupation in his house so that they could participate in this protest without violating the dorm rules. In any event, Mm -hmm. This occupation eventually morphed into a much bigger demonstration. Students left the house and took up on the main quad. And uh, for four days and four nights, they sat in on the main quad uh, singing protest songs. And uh, it was a silent vigil, so they were all silent other than during breaks. And then we, they were singing. And, and, and in, a, in a very overtly, very organized, very planned, a nonviolent way, they 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 appealed to the university to take these steps and and to show that peaceful protest could still be effective. You didn't have to just be um, 
you know, militant like whites and blacks at other schools were being. So that, that was the silent vigil in April of 68. And when you look at it, uh, even though it's an event that, that is, is a treasured moment in Duke's past because it's so full of, of good, uh, good uh, intention and uh, good, uh, good behavior and, and good aspirations, you know, it basically accomplished nothing. Um, but it was followed 10 months later by this occupation of the administration building by the black students, which, uh, you know, provides quite a contrast to how the black students were perceived when they started protesting. Indeed. And I want to get to that. Uh, one thing that I thought you did a remarkable job of in the book, though, is, is really painting the, the picture of President Knight. Um, for me, the, the way you wrote about him, he he just really seemed to exemplify this kind of feckless white liberal conscience of the time. I mean, he, he was a person who it just seemed like in his heart, he was truly sympathetic towards the plight of the, the black students on campus. He, he did want things to improve, but he was simply unable or, or in many cases, it seemed maybe unwilling to make the kind of bold changes that were, were really needed. What, what was your impression of Knight at once you finished this story? Well, Knight, uh, you know, is someone, in fact, the person, and you can probably sense this in the book, that I most struggled with because mm-hmm. Knight, I mean, you have him just right. He's, he's a liberal. He uh, was trained at Yale, and he was a classics professor and very high-minded, very erudite. And he considered himself uh, progressive on racial issues. I mean, he just thought of himself as, you know, wanting blacks to have their rights and wanting blacks to be able to go to school. But when he, when he came to Duke as president and discovered that to push Duke in this direction, it would actually require him to expend his political capital, which is to say, fight for it and make a sacrifice. Hmm. He didn't consider racial issues core enough to either his values or the university's values to really be able to go to the floor, go to the mat uh, for these issues. And so he dilly-dallied, he delayed, he perseverated. He did everything he could to avoid taking a stand on these race race issues because he knew that if he did so, um, alumni and his friends at Hope Valley Country Club and uh, fellow administrators and faculty would, would be, you know, very... Uh, upset by that. And and in that night, you know, some people ask, you know, how is it that a lawyer who spent 35 years in corporate law firms, you know, wanted to write this book or wrote this book? Well, you know, there are a lot of people in, in other historically white institutions, including today, including like me when I was there, who exhibit the same uh, tendencies. They make mm. statements about diversity and inclusion, but but when it really comes to sacrificing something meaningful, uh, like from profits or uh, whatever, it just it sort of stops. So, so Knight was someone I, as 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 awful as I see his behavior, I, you know, I saw a lot of myself and former colleagues in because that's the that's the trap that that moderates uh, find themselves, and that's that's no insight to me. I mean, that was. You know Martin Luther King's letter from the Birmingham jail, but right, but yeah, you right. got him exactly right. He's a, a a moderate who who just didn't have the courage of his convictions to really 
invest his political capital in racial change. So all these events then lead up to February 13th, 1969, and this is the day when the black students at Duke occupied and took over the the Allen Building, the administrative building on Duke's campus. T- talk about the importance of that day and, and the fallout from it. Well, um, you know, this organic process of the black students uh, organizing, discussing, and beginning to take steps, beginning to have protests, beginning to raise concerns and then demands that this whole organic process, you know, that basically started when the black students first arrived in 63, but really started in earnest in 67 when the Afro-American society was was formed. They had come to believe, the black students had come to believe that that they just weren't getting anywhere. Um, They were in these meetings and in these uh, committees and in these subcommittees and in these task forces, you know, the university thought it was taking their concerns seriously because it would set up initiatives and task forces and committees to deal with their problems. But when the black students would attend those meetings, they would just feel that the sense of urgency that they were feeling was not being reciprocated uh, by the university. And so when they felt ultimately they were completely out of options, and in part because it was happening at other campuses across the country, so it wasn't exactly like a novel idea, these youngsters got together and decided that they would occupy the bursar's office and the registrar's office of uh, the Allen Building to um, finally focus attention on their demands to the point where they could get actual answers and action and commitments that they could rely on. So they, not all of them, but about 45 out of 80 or 90 black students entered Allen Building at 8 a.m. on February 13th. It it was a day, just as an aside, that campuses all throughout the country were having black student protests. Um, And and so they entered uh, the Allen Building and they uh, ushered out the, the staff in the two offices they were occupied. And then they barred the doors. And then they said, you know, here are our 12 demands and we're not, you know, coming out until you meet these demands. And even though they never had plans to actually do this, they had brought with themselves some kerosene. And they said, just as a defensive matter, don't you be trying to come in here because if you try to come in here, we're going to, you know, burn all these academic records and, and do was really in a bind because, believe it or not, the only copies of student transcripts going back to 1865, like the original school that became Duke, the only copies were in this uh, registrar's office safe. And, you know, the students thought that the uh, threat of, of burning them would, would really kind of be meaningful. They they so didn't intend to, to do anything like that, that they poured the kerosene down the toilet within a few minutes. But in any event, the students are in the building. The administrators gather on the second floor of the same building, and they begin to discuss what to do. The chairman of the board of trustees calls in. Douglas Knight, the president, was in New York, actually trying to get a Ford Foundation grant for Black Studies. He flies back. And what happens is that within one hour, uh, this group decides that um, these students 
are trespassing and that the full force of the state police, the local police and the National Guard will be called out to eject them if they don't agree voluntarily to leave within one hour. And so the contrast between these white students who are holed up in the president's house, who are given 36 hours to make up their mind and even allowed to sign out to the president's house as guests. In contrast to that, you have these black students who were seen really by administrators from the beginning as intruders that, uh, they sort of had to take when these black students take this this step. Um, again, they're seen as trespassers oper- operating outside the ambit of the Duke family, and, and the decision was made that force would be brought to bear. So after just one attempt by the provost to communicate with the students, which went nowhere, um, the wheels were put in motion such that by just before nightfall, uh, police that had gathered in Duke Gardens began to march toward Allen Building to um, eject the students. Um, the students ended up um, having with them um, a seasoned black activists, and also there was a black professor. And they all came to them and they said, "Listen, you need to get out of here because if you are caught behind closed doors." by these police, you know, you will be in grave, grave physical danger. Mm. Um, and, and so based on the historical experience that these elder statesmen had had and, and the advice they gave these students, the, the black students ended up leaving the administration building just as the police were arriving. But by this moment, 1,500 white students had gathered and they began heckling the police and throwing paper cups, and one or two might have uh, thrown a rock. The, the reports differ. But in any event, with the black students now long gone, the police decide they need to clear the quad. And what ensues is this hour and a half long uh, you know, police riot, tear gas, pepper spray, suddenly the white students find themselves in this battle with police, Mm. uh, with the black students uh, all back in their dorm rooms, kind of looking out the window, wondering what the heck is going on. So again, it was a a very dramatic and fateful day. It it ultimately uh, led to a lot of uh, important consequences administratively at Duke. It, it, It did focus Duke a bit to get them to take some of the demands more seriously. Um, a number of white students who were tear gassed were probably made poor, more political by the experience. Um, and, and it was, a you know, it, it, that is looked back on as a, as a very kind of, uh, you know, monumental day in Duke history. And the way it gets narrated now is to say, well, Duke was all racist, but then the black students took over the Allen building. And after that, we sort of took care of business, but, you know, the, the, the sad story is that, um, you know, after a while passed, everything kind of went back to the normal course and Duke faces, I mean, everything is different. Duke's made huge commitments to anti-racism, but a lot of the same attitudes and a lot of the same passivity that the black students in 69 were, were confronting, uh, 
students at Duke today still confront. So, um, you know, everything's changed, but but there's a lot still the same. Sure. And that, yeah, and that really was what I wanted to ask about in your epilogue, because you note that, that there have been significant changes at Duke in the, the years since uh, 1969. To, to address inclusion and righting the wrongs of disparity that, that was really the status quo um, during that period. Um, and these have gone hand in hand with Duke rising to be one of the, you know, right. elite institutions in all of American higher education. Yet, you know, you also yes. note a, a series of continual controversies that seem to happen at Duke. Um, is, it, is there something embedded in the institutional culture there? Or is it more the case that these events tend to happen on other campuses, but they just don't get the attention that they do because of Duke's name and history? What do you, what do you think? Well, let me, let me just preface what I'm going to say by uh, acknowledging that, um, you know, I'm a retired corporate lawyer. I'm not a historian. Um, I know everything there is to know about Duke between 1963 and 1969 as it comes to race, because I spent four years studying it. And I think there's a lot to learn about today from studying that period, but I'm not a uh, expert in higher education or, or uh, even Duke history today, although I did study it a bit for purposes of the epilogue. Again, no, I mean, Duke, Duke, uh, you know, Duke now is, is uh, a majority minority undergraduate population. Uh, 12% of the students are black, but 51% of them are non-white and Duke has established programs and Duke has taken symbolic actions. Duke has done many consequential things to um, uh, acknowledge uh, its past and, and craft a new future. And you're absolutely right. Those things have gone hand in hand with Duke's uh, rise to prominence. And, and they're among the reasons why Duke uh, is so prominent is because they they you know position themselves uh, as 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 a leader. But with that said, um, the basic culture of Duke the 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 idea that that it's sort of a, a white institution and and non whites are just visiting the the real sense of inclusion in terms of, of, of coming to terms with, you know, sort of we're all in this together. Um, you have a place here. I have a place here. Um, notwithstanding, again, all of these changes, which are consequential, uh, at least what Black students told me, and I, I pre- do not presume to know or speak for the Black students for a hundred different reasons, but what they've told me is that they still experience these um, racial incidents. They still uh, see passivity in the university in responding to them. The racial incidents occur frequently enough that Black students have said they don't feel safe on campus. One Black student leader uh, told me in 2019, these incidents happen so much here, we think it's in the water. Mm. Um it's just sort of the way it is. And so, so this, um, you know, as in society, uh, along with this progress is this very intractable sense of attitudes and sense of reactions, uh, that Duke, like the rest of society has not been able to fully address. Um, whether, whether Duke has more of these or less of these, 
uh, it's clear it has a lot of these. Mm. And again, the way I tried to frame my book wasn't, is Duke better or worse than Vanderbilt? What I tried to frame my book as is, is Duke as good as it aspires to be? In other mm. words, Duke has these aims that it, 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 it sets out as what it's trying to be. And those include, you know, inclusion and diversity uh, as core aims. And, and the question is, has, has Duke accomplished that goal? And, and when you look at it, uh, you know, the answer is at least mixed. And um, a lot of the students of color would say there's a long way to go. Sure. Well, we want to be cognizant of your time, but before we go, um, I, I wonder, it's of course always too simple to, to put historical figures into categories of just simple good and bad. Everyone is a complex mix of motivations, but I wonder if there were any particular figures from your study that just really stood out to you as especially courageous and heroic during this period that you talked about. Um, well, it's interesting. I mean, the answer, uh, well, yes, yes. There was a dean, Dean William Griffith, who um, was dean of uh, either the student union or by then he had become dean of undergraduate studies. And he truly had a, a deep uh, moral commitment to um, the issues that the students were raising. And he, both with the silent vigil um, and with the Allen Building takeover, uh, really put his career, and in the case of the Allen Building, his physical safety at risk hmm. to attempt to avoid uh, physical confrontation. And so I, I see him as a, as a very, very uh, heroic figure uh, in this story. Um, but part of what you know the story narrates is that, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, you do have a handful of trustees who are, you know, openly racist. I mean, back in the 60s, it was, you know, a view that was accepted enough in some circles that people were willing to kind of write letters to one another that that are, by today's standards, just jaw-dropping. But ultimately, you know, change at Duke wasn't stifled because of uh, these handful of, of overtly racist trustees or deans or administrators, the, 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 the change stalled then because everyone in their own way, you know, found a way not to, to make it a priority. And uh, some found it inconvenient, some found it expensive, some found it uncomfortable. Uh, everyone had their own reason not to put uh, racial change as the top priority. But when you put all those people together, that's kind of why change at Duke during this period uh, was so hard. So there weren't a lot of villains and there weren't a lot of heroes. There were just everyone in the middle who um, just uh, went about their business in the ordinary course and were not willing to kind of sacrifice uh, politically or professionally or financially to really move the university forward. So hmm. I think that's the, the best answer to that question I can give. Well, it is a fascinating story that you tell, and I really appreciate it. Uh, Theodore D. Siegel is the author of Point of Reckoning, the Fight for Racial Justice at Duke University. 
It was published in 2021 by Duke University Press. Mr. Siegel, thank you again so much for the time today, and thank you for the book. My pleasure. Thank you, Lane. Really appreciate it. And thank you for listening to New Books in History. We hope that you will uh, subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts are distributed, Spotify, iTunes, other places, uh, to make sure to keep up with the latest that is out there. Thanks again for listening today, and we will catch you soon. (laughs) 